0: Maybe seated. Good morning. Glad you're here. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor, and I want to welcome you all. Uh, we have been going through a, a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. You may want to grab that Bible that's under the chair in front of you, or if you've got a Bible on your phone, just be finding Deuteronomy 7. It's okay to look in table contents. You don't know where Deuteronomy is, fifth book in the Bible. Um uh, Always, lots of folks at Mercy House where they're first experiencing the Bible, where things are. So don't feel bad if you don't know where Deuteronomy is. But Deuteronomy 7 is where we're going to land here in a minute. Uh, we, I've been saying that Deuteronomy is kind of a pep talk that Moses is giving Israel before they go into the Promised Land. So part of it, or a lot of it actually, is remembering the ways that God has intervened in their life uh, in the exodus and uh, in things that happened in the wilderness and things leading up to this moment where they're about to go in the promised land. And, and he, he gives them that backstory and there's some remembrances of some victories they've had, some failures they've had, in order to then ha- cause them to want to engage in the conquest that's before them. And that conquest is going to require them uh, to remove the people that currently live there. And I'm, I'm calling them the Canaanites kind of as a a catch-all a phrase uh, because it's the Canaanite uh, plain, and we heard in the beginning of this uh, Deuteronomy seven, a kind of a recap of the terms of that conquest, and and they're from our modern to our modern ears very severe. Uh, he is telling them, for instance, to make no covenant with them, to show no mercy to them, to devote them to complete uh, destruction. And we hear that, and and we we think well. Why, why not the Canaanites and why Israel? Why is Israel being chosen to be the, the people that God is for and the people that God's going to establish in, uh, in, in the promised land? And that's been, that question's been coming up all throughout the, the sermon series. And I've been mostly saying to people that ask me that question, read Deuteronomy 7 and I promise you we'll get there. Well, today we're there. All right? Uh, the reason why. Uh, Israel is chosen by God to be in the promised land. Now, why that's important is because there's some parallels between the reason why Israel is in the promised land and the reason, if you're a Christian, why you're a Christian, why you're a part of the church. There's some parallels there. So it's going to help us if we understand Israel, we understand better our own selves. And then we'll talk about the implications of those truths uh, when we get to the end there. So not to go into other sermons that have dealt with this, but as we look at this restating of the terms of the conquest, uh, it, it does, it's upsetting to us to hear, wow, that they're going to totally wipe out uh, the Canaanites. And what I, I think is a, a couple of things that are helpful to, to realize, one is it's not a license to kill everyone who's not like them. It's, it's, it's the permission to wipe out those in a particular geographical area because God wants to reestablish a, a nation there. And from that nation, He's going to bring a Messiah. And He's got a, a worldwide plan that He's putting in motion. But at this moment in the history of God's redemption of human beings, this is what is required. It's the only other time. Right? This, is, this is it. A time when, when He asks His people to do this kind of a thing. You might think of it similar to um, like an amputation, right? No doctor wants to amputate. That's the last thing, last resort. And we will do anything and everything to deal with the cancer, deal with the infection, deal with whatever it is that's in that particular limb before they amputate the limb. But there does, there does come a time, sometimes, when the best thing for the patient is to actually cut the leg off, cut, cut the arm off. It's, it's the only way that the patient can be saved. That's when you amputate. This is a moment like this in, in the history of human beings where the only way is, is to remove the Canaanites and to reestablish a nation there on that Canaanite plain. Right? If there was another way, if there's a way to give mercy to these Canaanites, God would have done it, but he, but he doesn't. It's a, it's a moment where amputation is required. Uh, you, you, you get to see some of God's thoughts regarding why He's moving the Canaanites out. He's moving the Israelites in in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 7 when He's saying, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following Me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and He would destroy you quickly, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. This gives you a little insight into into what God is, is doing. He's desiring to set up true worship among the nation of Israel. This Uh, Don't intermarry is not some hatred of other groups, not some racism, it's a hatred of false worship. And the Canaanites are participating in false worship and God wants to reestablish true worship. Now we, we learned, again, like two weeks ago when we looked at Deuteronomy 5 and the Ten Commandments that worshiping a false God leads to death. This is not an unloving thing for God to require true worship. True worship leads to life. And so again, God is is, is dealing with the people, not like some mob boss who's saying, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to break your legs. he's, He's saying, like an oncologist, if you don't do what I say, you will die. And he gives these commands. He gives these commands regarding especially true worship because it's a path back to Eden. It's a path back to life. So you may be asking, well, what's wrong with Canaanite worship? The same thing that's wrong with any other worship other than the worship of the one true God. Now, as I say that, I'm not saying that the United States of America should not be a place where all uh, have the freedom to worship. No, absolutely. I'm a huge fan, okay? I'm glad that we live in a place where any, anybody can worship however they want. Right? But I also want the United States of America to be a place or I can say all those other religions are false and that there is one true God. There's one true way to worship that one true God. What's wrong with Canaanite worship is the same thing that's wrong with every other kind of worship other than the one true God, and that is that it's self-centered. It's a self-centered kind of worship. Canaanite worship was based on basically fertility, We're trying to have more babies and have better crops. And those fit together because you needed a lot of babies to grow up and help work your crops. And the more babies you had, the better you had to farm your crops, right? And it would be similar to us in how we desire to have a big fat bank account. We want the security of having a big fat cushion of money. Well, the Canaanites are no different. They, they want to have safety. They want to have security. And so this is what drives them to worship fertility gods and goddesses such that they can have security and safety for their family, or so they thought. Right? Self-centered worship always has a means of control of the god or goddess. This is the essence of an idol. If you have a, a concrete idol, it's they don't think that that actual idol is the god or goddess. They see it as a means by which they can get to the god or goddess in the unseen. And so they they relate with that idol as a way to control the god or goddess, and they offer up sacrifices. or For the Canaanites, they participated in in, in sexual religious practices to try to convince the god or goddess to give them more fertility. But again, it's self-centered. Not much different, not different at all, actually, than our own self-centered versions of worship, some of which we call Christian worship, and they're very self-centered. I've been using this phrase um, multiple times throughout this uh, sermon series that comes from a a book called Soul Survivor, but it's a, a twisted version of Christianity that's not a true Christianity, and this guy that writes this book, he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism, It basically goes like this. moralistic part is God wants me to be a good person, do good deeds. And if I do those good deeds and I'm a good person, He'll give me a good life and I'll be happy. That's the therapeutic part. And He won't be really involved in my life unless I need Him. And that's the deism part. If I need Him to help me have more of a happy life, then I can call on Him. But other than that, He just leaves me alone and I do my thing. That's not Christianity. That's not a true worship. That's a false worship, even though we might call it Christianity. So he's killing Canaanites because he desires to destroy false worship and establish true worship in the nation of Israel. You see this vision for true worship in the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord of, of God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All those are about true worship. He wants to establish true worship. He wants the nation of Israel to, to represent this reintegration of God and humans. The reintegration that's needed because of the disintegration of sin and its effects that occurred because of human beings and their rebellion against God. Again, it's a path back to Eden. He wants to reintegrate humans and God, humans and humans, humans and even the earth. The way that the Israelites are are going to be commanded to care for the earth and to work and to steward the nation that they've been given, all of this represents the reintegration that God wants to bring about by His grace. Now, that's all review our catch-up. Um, Moses, being a good preacher, he, he, re, he repeats himself over and over and over and over again. So we see these themes over and over. So it's helpful if you, if you haven't been with us or if you just needed a refresher. So still the question lingers. Why Israel? Why Israel? And he answers this, or at least begins to answer this, in verses 6 through 9. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So why Israel? Well, he's, he, part of what he just said in that few verses is why not Israel? And why not Israel is because in Israel is, is many That Israel is so big, it's not why he's chosen Israel. Now again, in the ancient world, having a lot of people was really, really important because uh, any kind of military combat was hand-to-hand. This is before any kind of bombs or military technology uh, for for the most part. And so if you were going to take lots of land and be very powerful, you need lots of people. And so he lets them know, "I, I didn't pick you because you were... Many, In fact, the Canaanites were, were many, 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 many more people, much more numerous than Israel. But more generally, what he's saying is, Israel, there's nothing inherent about you that caused me to love you. Nothing. It's not because you were smarter than other people. It wasn't because you, you were humble or loving or courageous or good at waging war. It wasn't because you had a great nation-building plan. It wasn't like Shark Tank where all the nations came out in front of God and they pitched their nation-building plan, and God said, Israel, that's the best plan I've ever heard. I pick you. Nope. They had no plan. It, it, It wasn't because they were impressive or rich or because they were looked up to by other nations. In fact, they were looked down on. It wasn't anything. There's nothing inherent about Israel that caused God to love. So why? Why Israel? A couple reasons. One is God's love. He loves them. He says He set His love on them. He says, I love you because I love you. That's basically what He's saying. He's saying His love is absolutely unconditional. There's nothing that Israel did. And made them worthy of His love. He merely set His love on them. He loves them because He loves them. Number two reason is because of God's promise. Four to five hundred years before uh, this sermon's being ad- addressed to Israel, God is making a promise to a man named Abraham. He's saying, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to start with you. Out of your family is going to come a nation, and that nation is going to take possession of a land. And in that land, I'm going to dwell with you. My presence will be with you. And then I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And he made this promise, and he made it in an interesting way. One of the places in the Bible, Genesis 15, where he affirms the covenant with Abraham, they do this covenant cutting ceremony. This is an ancient practice where they would take animals, cut the animals in half, put one side of the animals on one side, the other side on the other side, and then the two people making the covenant would walk through the middle of those animals. I know it's kind of bloody and gory and gross, but they'd walk through it, and it was called cutting the covenant And what they were saying is, if I don't hold up to my end of the deal, you can do to me what has been done to those animals. And it's sort of like a a, a handshake, but very intense kind of handshake, right? But here's the interesting thing. In Genesis 15, Abraham cuts the animals. He gets everything set up. He's waiting for God. God doesn't show up. God's late. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. And then God finally shows up, puts Abraham in in a deep sleep, and God himself moves through the animals. To cut the covenant it's his way of saying I will make good on this covenant no matter what no matter what humans do and don't do I'm gonna make good on this and so here four to five hundred years later God's making good on that promise not because the Israelites have been good boys and good girls in fact there's, there's had to be a 40-year a uh, delay to discipline them in the wilderness before they could bring them into the, <laughs> the promised land, they're being anything but helpful. But Jesus, our, our God, God is saying, I am going to make good on this covenant. So, His love and His promise, and of course, I've been using the word covenant already, but love and promise really weave together to form this concept of covenant. And a covenant is basically an agreement that God makes with human beings, and it's based on God. It's based on his ability to make sure the covenant is fulfilled. You see all that woven together in verse 9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, there's the promise, who keeps covenant, there's the covenant, and steadfast love. So why Israel? His unconditional love. Why Israel? His unconditional promise. And those are wrapped together in a covenant that he's made With Israel. Uh, In this text is used uh, this very important word in the Old Testament. If you know any Hebrew, this is one of the words you should know the word hesed. And it's usually translated in the English Standard Version, which is what we're using today, as steadfast love. And it's it's described this way this is from uh, the doctrine book, actually, that we're using in my small group this semester describing this hesed idea. It says it's not a stretch to say that the word hesed in essence summarizes the entire history of God's covenantal relationship with Israel. Hesed is God's loving kindness, the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God. It's often translated as covenant love, loving kindness, mercy, steadfast love, loyal love, devotion, commitment, or reliability. It's quite a paragraph. This concept is just exploding with with meaning about the character of God. If that was a little much, we could go to the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says here that hesed love is is God loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Love. And the proof for Israel of that kind of love that God has for them is the Exodus. Moses constantly takes them back to the Exodus. You see that in verse 8 it says, It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of a might, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's like, You want proof? that I love you, that my love's unconditional? See the Exodus. Israel did nothing. They didn't lift a sword. They didn't didn't shed any any of their own blood. They didn't do anything. They had no effort required from them. God rescued them. He sent the ten plagues. He sent Moses. They had to do nothing. And it was the absolute unconditional love of God for them. God wants them to know that this relationship that he has with them and that they have with Him is based on grace. It's based on grace. It's all grace. We have some friends, Austin and Sarah Evans. They actually spent some time here helping us to start the church uh, back in the early 2000s, but they have been involved in some other kinds of ministries since they've left us, and uh, one is which has has been uh, some international adoptions. And the most recent is this little boy named Yo Young, And they're currently either they're in China right now getting him, or they're like in the air. I mean, they've just just gone to get him. Yo Young has a syndrome that is going to cause, already has caused some developmental delays, some physical delays, some 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 things that are are really going to be a challenge for them as he grows up. And they already have a son, Nolan, who has that same syndrome. It's partly why they really had compassion on Yo Young when they saw that he was up for adoption. Now they've never, they, before, they've never met him, they, they saw a picture, not, no interaction with this kid, and they decided, we're going to adopt this kid. It's one way, <laughs> it's unconditional, it's extremely expensive. The travel, the adoption price, all the therapy that he's going to have to go through, lots of medical issues, they are signing up for an extremely sacrificial journey with Yo Young, but they love him. They love him. They want to, to love him. And not only that, do they want to, to love him and rescue this child who probably wouldn't otherwise be adopted at all, but they're making a family. They're making a family. And they're adding to that family and this environment of, of love and ongoing maturation of those kids that make up the Evans family. This is, this is what God's doing with Israel. He's, he's rescuing, yes, individuals that he loves. He knows their name. I love it when, when Moses comes in contact with God at the burning bush. God doesn't just say, hey, you, hey, human, don't you know who I am? Get on your face. He calls him by name. It's Moses. And then he talks to Moses about other people by name. He knows them as individuals. And so he's, he's rescuing them as individuals, saving them, but also gathering them into A new community, a new family, desiring to display this reintegration of heaven and earth and human and human and even human to earth in the nation of Israel. And the response that he wants back from them is holy living. Right? Like He gives this unconditional love, this unconditional promise, and his, his expectation is that inside that covenant, they will respond. That's when you, you, you hear things like verse 10, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. He's, he's saying to them, the response that I desire from you is that you would live holy lives but not be, again not like the mob boss right but the oncologist who's, who's saying this is the, the, the road back to Eden this is the road back to life any other road is going to result in death reminds me of this the speech that uh, Denzel Washington he's playing a coach in remember the Titans and it's their summer training camp and he's giving him the speech at the beginning of training camp and he says to this football team that he's coaching he, he says you will not be cut. You will not be cut. I will not cut you from the team. And then he says, but if you drop a ball, you will run a lap. If you miss a block, you will run a lap. And he goes through this whole list of things. You, you will run a lap, right? And he says, because we are, our goal is perfection as a team. There's something similar going on in this passage where Moses is establishing God's unconditional love, unconditional promise, unconditional choosing of Israel. And he's saying inside the safety of that community, that covenant community, you live a holy life. You are called to live this life of complete, absolute, unconditional surrender to God, the one worthy of worship. So what does this have to do with us? Right? It's a nice story about Israel, but what about us? And What we've been saying week in and week out, there's a continuity from Old Testament people of God to New Testament people of God. We can learn a lot about God's dealings with Israel and apply that to our own understanding of His dealings with us, the the people of God, the church. While Old Testament Israel has a Passover that they look back on and the bloody price of Passover lambs that had to be paid in order for them to be released from slavery, we too have an Exodus, but it's, it's not the Passover. It's not the Exodus. It's Christ on the cross. The ultimate Passover lamb. The, the infinite cost that was paid so we could be delivered from sin and death and hell. Worse slave masters than, than any, any Pharaoh could have ever been. And, and we, like Israel, are, are being freed by that redemption price that's being paid, freed to worship. We're free to worship the one true God this this is the heartbeat of the gospel is it that we'd be free from sin and its effects not just so we can go okay check got that done no so that then we can step into a whole new life of worshiping the one true God and so again we might ask ourselves well then why why you why me is it because I'm smarter than other people no Is it because I'm more religious? Is it because of my great personality? What is it? What is it about me that that causes God to to, to want to choose me to be one of his sons and you to be one of his daughters or sons? What, What is it? It's unconditional love. He's chosen you out of his unconditional love, he's chosen you out of his unconditional promise. In fact, when he's, he's calling you to faith in Christ to be reconciled with God, he's actually still making good on the promise he made to Abraham. When he told Abraham, I'm going to raise you up in a na- as a nation, now that nation, I'm going to bless all other nations, he's talking about Christ being raised out of Israel and eventually men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue being called to faith in Christ and brought into the family of God. So you and me, too, Part of the, if we're responding to, to the gospel with faith, it's because God has chosen us out of His unconditional love and His unconditional promise. This is throughout the New Testament. This is not just Old Testament stuff. It's throughout New Testament. I'll give you three examples, three different parts of the Bible, the gospels. Uh, here's, this is Jesus in John 15, 16. He's talking to the disciples. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. He's like, You didn't choose me. I chose you. The absolute unconditional love that Jesus has for those disciples, is promise. His faithfulness, this is what drives that. In Acts 13.48, this is when the the Gentiles, the non-Jews, began to respond to the gospel with faith. And Luke, the writer, is saying, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Same kind of idea. Luke sees... These Gentiles, these non-Jews, coming to faith in Christ, being part of the people of God, and he realized God is choosing them, He's appointing them, He is intervening in their life by grace. In one of the letters, uh, Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, He's choosing the Ephesians. He's calling them to faith in Christ. He's bringing them into the people of God. So why am I a Christian? Well, on the ground level, I'm a Christian because I heard the gospel I understood the gospel intellectually. I considered the gospel. I wrestled through my questions. I read some things. I listened to some sermons. I, I talked to some other Christians. I got to a place where I understood it and I believed it. And I didn't just believe it intellectually, but I believed it and trusted in it for my salvation. Right. So that's on the ground level. But, but on the ultimate level, why am I a Christian? Why are you a Christian if you're a Christian? It, it's because God chose you. His unconditional love, his unconditional promise that he's fulfilling. If you're a Christian, it's by grace. It's by grace alone. And this is good news. This is good news. Now, you might be asking, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? Well, listen to what Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians about how he knows they're chosen. First Thessalonians 1, 4. It says, "For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He's letting the Thessalonians know, I know you're chosen. Why? Because when I preached the gospel to you, you responded with saving faith. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. It wasn't just, "Oh, that's interesting, Paul. Hey, thanks for sharing. I think I'll be heading on now. No. No, they believed it. They trusted in it. it began to change their lives and transform them, and they began to look more and more like Jesus Christ. And he's like, "That's how I know that you're chosen by God. That He has intervened with His grace." When the the apostle Peter is is talking with Jesus, and the, uh, Jesus is asking them, "Who does who do the disciples say that He is?" And Peter says, "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And this is in Matthew sixteen. Jesus doesn't say. Wow, Peter, you're so smart. I'm going to give you an A. He says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. It's supernatural. You cannot discern the gospel. You cannot come to saving faith in the gospel unless God intervenes by grace. It's unconditional love, unconditional promise. So, Okay, got it. Nice theological point. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? I think it does matter. Here's some reasons. Here's four reasons. Uh, Number one is a deep appreciation of the unconditional love of God for you. It's one thing to say, God loves human beings, right? In fact, it's one thing for us to say, I just love humans. You know, do you love humankind? Yes, I love humankind. And then you have to room with one of them, right? And you have to be married to one of them. And you have to be in a family with one of them. And you have to try to do friendship with one of them. You have to do, have a conversation about politics with one of them, right? And suddenly it's not that easy to love humans, right? But God, who knows every intricacy, every thought, every inclination of yours, absolutely unconditionally loves you. If you're a Christian, <laughs> absolutely unconditionally loves you. Let, let that just wash over you. It, it, almost every other relationship we're in, we're on a performance basis. If we don't do the right thing, we don't, we don't do certain, certain things to make that person behold us a certain way and care for us and love, love us. I mean, the closest thing that we're, we're talking about would be like a marriage covenant, right? You, you notice when, when husbands and wives stand up and they, and they take the, uh, the, the, the vows, they say, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, for richer, for poorer. It's all this hard stuff. Wonder why they keep mentioning the hard stuff, right? Is marriage only hard stuff? No. But it's in the hard stuff where you need covenantal love. Where you say, I love you because I love you. Not because you're making me really happy right now. Not not because you have a perfect body. Not because your personality is is just doing it for me right now. No, it's because I have entered into a covenant with you. I love you. And this is what God has done for us. He's entered into this covenant and he's saying, I love you because I love you. It's absolutely unconditional love. We, we are yo young, right? We got a lot of needs. And we need God to swoop down and save us, rescue us, forgive us. We have nothing to offer. We'd like to think, God, you, you go 99% and I'll go 1%, right? I, I've got a little bit to... No, you don't understand the gospel. If you think in that way, if you're like, God comes 99% and I come 1%, you, you don't understand it. It's grace alone. God has given you this as an unconditional gift. Man, this is good news. This is good news. Let, let the depth of that love for you free you, lay a foundation for you to stand on. And, and the, these, these are in order. I think there's there's a little bit of a chain here. So, as you, as you experience that love, it, it should humble you, right? It should humble you. It, if I couldn't even respond to the gospel outside the grace of God, then even if I'm having a tough day, I have salvation by grace, and and it, hum, it, it humbles me, and it, it causes me to, to keep from looking down on other people, right? And Christians can so easily slip into this. They're like, oh, I'm so incredulous that that person acts that way or they do that. Or Especially if they're talking about folks that don't know Jesus. And they're like, oh, can you believe that person? What? If it wasn't for grace, we'd be that. We'd be worse. And so it should, it should humble us. Listen to the Apostle Paul talk to the Corinthians. I love this. First verse of our first chapter of First Corinthians. He says, "For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are." so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you know that the Corinthians were messed up. Like they, They had become so haughty about their particular spiritual gifts. And Paul just cuts them down to size. He's, he's like, remember, you had, you had no noble birth, no power, no money, no wisdom, no nothing. And God saved you. He chose you. He swooped you up in his unconditional love. Right? It humbles us. It humbles us. It also makes us holy. It makes us holy. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Oftentimes, when you see Paul using uh, concepts around election or choosing, he's also wrapping around that holiness. And there's a reason, because he understands that if at the deepest part of your heart, you know that the reason that you're in Christ is by grace alone. It motivates you to live a holy life. That the deepest motivator is not God's going to get me, God's going to stop loving me if I don't do the right thing. No. It's because He is loving me unconditionally that motivates me to live a holy life. Again, you heard it in Ephesians 1 that I read earlier. He shows us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Charles Spurgeon, who was a a pastor in the 1800s in London, he, uh, he says this in one of his sermons, actually on Deuteronomy. He says, There's no truth of God that can so nerve a man to piety, that means motivate them to holiness, as the fact that he was chosen of God before time began. Loved by you with an unlimited love that never moves and that endures to the end, Oh my God, I desire to spend myself. And again, he's saying this deep knowledge of the love of God motivates him to live a holy life. You may have heard of, of a concept called church discipline, where when a person becomes a member of the church, part of the, what they're signing up for, they're saying, you know, if I go off the rails and I begin to live a life that's habitually repeatable, like repeatably non-repentant in a particular area of my life, that I'm giving the church permission to come and to, to exhort me to come back to Jesus and to repent. Right? And that starts off in a very private conversation with a, a leader and that person, and then if they're not interested, the whole a couple of other people get involved. This is all in Matthew 18, and Jesus lays it out. And then if, if they're still not un, willing to repent, then the whole church could get involved. And the whole church could even vote to say, we're, we're going to revoke your membership of the church, right? And the reason is not so we can modify behaviors it's because at that point, the church would come to believe that the person actually is not a Christian and they would implore them to come back to Christ and to repent. And the reason the church would think that way is again, if someone knows the unconditional love of God, they wouldn't be going off the rail like that. They wouldn't be in this habitual, repeatable, non-repentant kind of a life and so they're exhorted to come back, to receive the unconditional love of God, and to be back in a holy way of living. Fourthly, this understanding of, of God's unconditional love, His unconditional choosing of us, it should make us bold in sharing the gospel. It makes us bold in sharing the gospel. If we are, our understanding is the, the way we become a Christian is primarily the work of God's Holy Spirit on us. Then anybody's game, anybody who, who may be far, far, far in our own mind from God could become a Christian. I think we think of it a little differently. We usually are looking for people that are close. Who's close to becoming a Christian? What we mean by close is we mean their 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 behavior is pretty ethical, they don't cuss a lot, they're kind of quasi-Christian, and then maybe, maybe they could easily kind of come over the line. But the, the, the thinking there is that it's all human. It's, it's my human effort to convince them. It's their human effort to understand it. And if our understanding is that God himself is the one that's calling people to faith in Christ, it should make us bold. And in fact, I find that those that are close can sometimes not think they need Jesus they're pretty moral, pretty ethical. Things are going pretty well. They don't realize that they're desperate for grace, that those that are far away can oftentimes understand the grace of the gospel in a greater way. So as we, as we come to this table, we are reminded of this truth again and again. You think about Jesus and his disciples this is the night before He is going to die on the cross, and He's sitting there with His disciples, and oh, what a group. They're not necessarily the board of directors, right? These are not really smart. They're, they're not really powerful. No one has a lot of money. No one has really much to offer. In, in, in fact, they've just had an argument among themselves about who's the greatest of the disciples. A couple of them have gone over to Jesus and asked, Can I be on your right and on your left in the new administration? And one of them is going to betray him. Another one's going to deny him. So it really didn't seem like they have much to offer. And so at that table, the only one really has anything to offer is Jesus himself. And he takes bread, he breaks it, he blesses it. He gives it to his disciples. He says, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup, and after he's blessed it, he gives it to them. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When he uses that word covenant, he's he's using this language that they understand from the covenant community of Israel. And what he's saying is there's continuity between that Old Testament people of God and this New Testament people of God, but there's something new going on in this new covenant, that by the grace that that Christ is going to offer up on the cross, he's going to form a new people of God. And those people aren't just going to be Israel. Those people are going to be all the nations. And Jesus is saying that my payment of my death, the breaking of my body, the pouring out of my blood is going to make the way for you to be rescued and brought into this new community. And just like we're about to do when we walk up here, the only thing we can really do is just receive it. Because it's all grace. It's all grace. So if you're here this morning and... Perhaps you've you've heard enough about the gospel. You've heard enough about what Christ has done for you. Maybe you've read some books, had some conversations, heard some sermons previously. But you know that this morning you're at a place where you really want to receive Christ and His forgiveness for the first time this morning. I want to encourage you to do that. And that's what's happening on the ground. And what's happening at the ultimate level is God's been drawing you. He knows you. He loves you. He died for you, and He's drawing you into a relationship with Him, a life-giving relationship in this life and the life to come. So if you're at that place, I I encourage you to to, to reach out to God in prayer. Receive that free gift. And then come and receive the bread and the cup here in a minute as a way to profess that externally. For the rest of us, it's a reminder that it's all Grace. You're acting this out. If you come up here and take the bread and take the cup and receive it, I always encourage people to come with an open hand and just let let the person just place that in that hand of yours as a way to remember. It's all grace, and as you receive that unconditional gift, you, you and and you know when you come down here, you, you usually don't like try to pay a dollar for the for the cup right in the in the cracker right. No one's paying when they come up here, right? Am I right? Because you shouldn't. You shouldn't try to offer a dollar when you come up here right it's free so you receive it you receive it as a gracious gift and it's a reminder of the gift that god has given you via his unconditional love and his unconditional promise now if you're here today and you're beginning to investigate the christian faith you know you're not a christian you're just starting on that journey we're really glad that you're here Uh, but we're going to encourage you during this time of communion just to remain in your seat to pray think about what you're hearing and then, if you want to talk more about it, I'll be down front i I'd, I'd be happy to have that conversation, or maybe there's someone here that uh, is a friend that you know that you could have that conversation with. but just during this time, just sit, pray, think about what you're what you're hearing so let's pray. I thank you that you are a good God that that you love us a love that <laughs> Honestly, we don't experience from any other relationship an absolute unconditional love for us. And so we're grateful for that. We receive that. Lord, I I pray that each one here who is your son, your daughter, they, they, they would let that go down deep to the very core of who they are. And that whatever challenge they now face as they walk from this place, whether it be an internal challenge, an external challenge, but that where they go for their center, for their foundation, is your absolute unconditional love. And help us to just sink our feet down deep into that foundation, Lord, and to trust you and your work and not ours. Lord, bless the bread, bless the cup. May this be a time of of sweet communion with you, Lord, of being encouraged, of being challenged, of being called to holy living. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.